All right, good morning, church. Thank you for being here with us on this Easter Sunday. And props to all of you who had the foresight last week when you went shopping to buy Easter sweaters and jackets and those kind of things. I, I was not thinking that way, so I, I respect you. That's, that's impressive. Uh, also, I just want to say thanks to all uh, who also joined us on Good Friday. Um, Good Friday uh, was very special to me. It's always one of my favorite services of the year. And part of the reason why it's so special, kind of what we were talking to the kids about, is because of the, the light in which it puts this morning. Um, even for my own children, it's helpful to be able to explain the difference between our Good Friday sermon and our Good Friday service and then um, the joyous celebration that is Easter morning. So uh, thank you all for being here and taking part in this holy weekend. If you were here on Good Friday, you know that on Good Friday, we looked at the first half of Hebrews 6, where the author shares the many ways in which people can walk away from the faith. And we see the gravity of such an offense symbolized through the analogy of nailing Christ back to the cross. In Hebrews 6, he's talking about these people that have experienced the grace of God, have experienced the church, turned from that, and are ultimately guilty of putting Jesus back on the cross. Today, however... In the second half of Hebrews 6, we see the author's confidence that these believers who sit before him, who remain in the body, will not be guilty of, of such. They will endure and they will partake in the glorious promise of God through Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. Because the tomb is empty, we can finish well the race that is set before us. And that's the point of, the, of, of Hebrews 6, to those who remain and continue to gaze towards Jesus. The author wants them to understand that we have everything that is needed to persevere to the end through Christ. Like the author this morning, as your pastor, I believe that God will see you to the end. And I have prayed that you might be encouraged this morning to endure in the midst of all circumstances through the power of the empty tomb. We ended Good Friday with verse 9, and that's where I want to start this morning. Hebrews 6, chapter 9, or chapter, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. As Christians, we need both loving warning and loving assurance. We need Good Friday and we need Easter Sunday. We need membership that provides both guidance for loving fellowship and for loving discipline. We need brothers and sisters who will call our sin what it is and who will also remind us of the gospel in which our hope is found, who will be the first to comfort us in our grief and the first to speak truth to us when we are in error. Few people experience this kind of love today, but this is the kind of love that is reflected here in this verse. The author of Hebrews has struck this balance perfectly in this chapter. The warning has been grave, but the hope has been even greater. The author begins this transition from rebuke to encouragement by addressing the body as beloved, which seems crazy in light of all the things that he has just said. This word is astonishing and beautiful. And I want to take a moment just to remind you to consider the words that he has just written to the church in the previous verses leading up to identifying them as beloved. In Hebrews 5, 11 and 12, he called them dull of hearing. Even though he said, even though this time you ought to be teachers, you're not. In Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, he said that they were like babies that were stuck on milk. 
And then in Hebrews 6, 8, which we looked at on Good Friday, he points out that some of them have experienced some awesome things and they are hooked on religion, but they're likely not saved, likely not even Christians. They are like a field that produces only thorns and thistles. After saying these things that would be incredibly difficult to hear, he goes on after writing all of this to address the church in a way that he only uses one time in the entire book of Hebrews. He calls them essentially the ones that I love. We see that even his warning that the rebuke that comes is a rebuke that comes from genuine love and care and earnest desire for these people to finish the race put before them. The author of Hebrews reveals a deep love for a specific people. This was not just a broad generalization. He knew the hearts, the lives. He knew things about the people who were going to receive this letter that nobody else did. He cared for them and shows his genuine love for them in the way that he expresses beloved. In these words, we are reminded that true love must include truth. And in verse 10 and 11, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The author has warned the church of sin's effects by pointing out those who have already been drawn away and warning those who remain not to be counted among them. But then he assures those whom remain, those whom he loves, that he is confident in their salvation and that they will finish the race by the power of God. And he desires them to live in this type of, insure, uh, this type of assurance until the end. And one of the reasons he feels so confident in the salvation of those who remain is because of the love they have shown one another. This is the reason he's so confident that they belong to God, that they are children of the promise. Because when we're living out the fruits of the Spirit, we grow in our assurance of the source of that fruit and in the way that they are loving, caring for, devoted to one another, building one another up to the glory of God, he sees the work of the fruits of the Spirit in them. The church has done some things wrong. They've experienced some hurt. And I'm sure the leaders have made some mistakes. But ultimately, the fact that a group of people who are so different, I mean, you have Jews and Gentiles, completely different kinds of people from different walks of life, much like the church God continues to build today, the fact that they have been made a family and that they are actively loving and serving each other, laying down their lives for the good of one another, this is evidence of true salvation. And the author now wants to encourage those who are sitting here partaking in those things of this evidence. And we see here that the author's desire for them is that they will not only mature in their knowledge, which he has expressed clearly, but that they will also mature in the assurance of the salvation they have been given. And verse 12 says why. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Referencing back to 5.11, he shares that some have become apathetic, but he desires that this may not be the case for those who remain. And he desires that they might be inspired by remembering the saints who have gone before, those who with faith and patience inherited the promises. I often need this reminder it seems that those who exit the race tend to garner the most attention. 
or at least the most space in my thoughts and the most space in, in public speak. Because of my own fears and insecurities, I'm prone to be discouraged by those whose faith is proven to be false. And I lose sight of the countless ones whose faith was proven true in the last days and nobody knew about it. And the author of Hebrews reminds me that this is part of the reason why God's word is so important. This is part of the reason that we need to grow in our knowledge of the word, not just the New Testament, but the Old as well. Because yes, we need to read of the salvific promise fulfilled in the life of Christ, but we also need to read of and be inspired by those who awaited that promise patiently. Those who endured through trial and famine, placing their hope in a promise they would not see fulfilled during their time on earth. These saints of old are important because in many ways, we relate to them more than the crowds who were gathered around Christ. Unlike the saints of old, we have seen the promise fulfilled, and that's why we're here this morning. That's what we're celebrating this Easter Sunday. But like them, we celebrate this Easter Sunday as a people of Advent, as a people awaiting the final fulfillment of God's restorative promise. And as we wait, the author's encouraging that we can draw strength through those whom have waited before us. For many have gone before us, and despite all types of trial, they have inherited the promise, and by God's grace, so shall we. That the same promise, the same power that carried them forward, he promises can carry us forward. Because the grave is empty, this promise is certain in Christ. And he goes on in 13 through 15 to share the certainty of this promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Here in this text, the author reminds the church of the origin of the promise of which he speaks. In Genesis 17:4, God tells Abraham that he's going to be a father to many nations, meaning the promise of God would not merely be for the descendants of Abraham, but he says many nations, but Gentile believers, meaning non-Jews, they would also be counted amongst his people. And this is an obvious reality as we sit here in 2022, but this was a real struggle for those who were less than 70 years removed from Christ's death. And then let us consider Hebrews 3.19, which we read last month. So, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So all of this, just bear with me, in reference to the promise that's being referred to, we see that not only did God intend to rescue those from other tribes and other peoples, but this verse, talking about those unable, unable to enter, is in reference to those from Abraham's direct line who wandered in the wilderness. So being a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't, guarantee anything if one's faith is not in Jesus Christ. This is why the author was so dismissive, we saw on Good Friday, of all of these Jewish rituals that they were hooked on. The author wants the church to be encouraged, and he reminds them of Abraham to inspire them to endure. However, he reiterates that we model Abraham not in terms of our bloodline, but in his patient waiting, his gospel endurance. Being an heir of the promise of God, 
is a, not a result of having the ethnicity, ethnicity of Abraham, but it's a result of having the faith of Abraham. Patience and faith is what we model as children of Abraham. Verses 16, 17, 18 continue. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This text is in reference to Genesis 22. And in Genesis 22, we see that both the promise and the oath were made. I want to set a little background to when the, the occasion that's taking place when this promise and oath were made. This is the story of Isaac being taken up the mountain, where God comes to Abraham and he tells him to sacrifice his son, his only son, to take him up to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him before the Lord. And Abraham takes him, Isaac goes willingly, they're at the top of the mountain, Abraham is prepared to act on what God has called him to do, and then an angel stops him, and we know that God provides a ram, that he might not have to go through with this sacrifice. Now, here with me, I want to look at, uh, kind of following up to, at the end of that story, is Genesis 20, we're in Genesis 22, 15 through 18, it says this. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as of the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God makes his divine promise in direct response to Abraham's obedience of faith in offering his son. God says, because you have done this, I will bless you. And in this, we see that the ultimate qualification for this promise, this sovereign oath, is not Abraham's heritage or his works, but Abraham's faith. To consider this a little more deeply, track, bear with me as we kind of go down this little road here. I want to look at some words that were written that help explain what's taking place here. They're written by the author of Hebrews a little further down the road in chapter 11, 17 through 19. It says this about this scenario, this story here with Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Here in this commentary on the, on, on the origin of the promise, we see that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. Abraham's faith was proven under the most extreme of testing. Nothing, not even his child, would be a priority above his commitment to the Lord. And so, 
he offered up his only begotten son. Now, if you are familiar with Abraham and you've, you've read through the Old Testament, you know that Abraham had another son, Ishmael. But that son was the product of Abraham previously failing to trust in God's promise, the promise the Lord had made him. Ishmael was the result of Abraham absolutely rejecting, not, not all out rejecting, but rejecting with his actions, his assurance that God could fulfill his promise. And so he sought to do the work of God without the power of God. Because of this, Genesis 22 tells us God did not recognize the other son. So Isaac was called his only begotten son which is a reference to Christ's role as the greater and more perfect Isaac. And this text here in Hebrews 11 said that Abraham, he considered that God was able. The ancient Greek word translated as he considered is a modern word for accounting. It means he, he considered, he, 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 did, he did the accounting work, he figured in his head. It's a term from arithmetic expressing a decisive and carefully reasoned act. This means that Abraham calculated God's promise as worthy of his full confidence. It's hard, you can't even imagine. I mean, when you read this story, especially as a young Christian and in the beginning, it's uncomfortable. Like, why would God even ask of this? But Abraham, and Abraham was struck by that same reality, but he calculated in his head. He knew who God was. He knew the promise he had been given, and it had been proven true through Isaac, he trusted the Lord. He knew the character of God. He remembered the faithfulness of God. And he was willing to put his precious son in the hands of the God who created him. For it says that he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which he did receive him back. As far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac was going to die. Yet, at the same time, he knew the character of God. And he trusted that the Lord could bring life from death. Something about an idea of resurrection seemed to resonate with Abraham before he even knew the fullness of why. And so God provided a ram, a sacrifice in his place. And that ram was intended to shadow God's only begotten son, whom, like Isaac, would be brought back from the dead through the gracious will of our Father. There is a peculiar scene in John 8, 56, that people have a lot of different thoughts on. But in John 8, 56, Jesus says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus uh, hid himself and went out of the temple. There are some who believe that Jesus is referencing this moment in Abraham's life. I don't know that for certain. But this moment where Abraham's faith was rewarded, where his son was brought back from the brink of death, through a spotless sacrifice. The moment when God, this moment in Abraham's life where God let him in on a secret and gave him a little hint as to what he was up to there on the top of that mountain. On the top of that mountain, 
we see the first Good Friday service, that Isaac being strapped down was a picture of what was going to culminate on Good Friday. But then through the ram and the thicket, we get a preview, a prequel, if you will, as to the celebration of Sunday morning. This is the moment that we celebrate this morning. Like Abraham, our faith is rooted in resurrection and the assurance that we know that God is able to bring life from death. Because Christ rose from death, so we too have been invited out of death and into life. A life in which we need not shy away from the weighty call of God, but like Abraham, we must lean in, remembering the promise, remembering God's faithfulness, trusting that the promise is true, depending on His reign to sprout life out of the soil of our soul. For verses 19 and 20, our last two verses today say, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As I close on this Easter Sunday, I want to remind you of the assurance we have by considering the words that are used to describe our assurance here in this text. The first word we see in describing this assurance is that it is sure. Every Sunday, and especially every Easter Sunday, we are reminded that our anchor, the anchor of our soul, the anchor that holds us firm in the midst of all of life's crazy circumstances, He is sure. He has never ceased. We tend to, I tend to think, especially because of the last few years, that I, might just, I must just live in the craziest, most bananas time in history. But the truth is, I don't. I don't live in the craziest time in history. Throughout all kinds of craziness, of, of just utter chaos beyond what I can imagine, the anchor of our soul has never ceased to hold his people firmly in place because of his awesome power. On Good Friday, the thief on the cross looked at Jesus and having only known him for a moment, he was sure, and he knew his confidence in this man to be sure. He placed his hope in the man who hung beside him. And then after he died, a Roman soldier who had seen countless executions, he gazed upon Jesus, and he was sure. And he belted out for all to hear, this man truly was the Son of God. Those men didn't even know about the resurrection. Like they didn't, ever, they didn't even know anything about Easter. How much greater then is our hope this morning as those who have seen far more than they saw? He walked out of the grave and he was proven to be our sure and forever savior. And he is not only sure, but he's described here as steadfast. He is reliable. He will never fail us or forsake us. All else is fleeting, but Christ remains. Our friends, our body, our church, our possessions, they will all fail us, but Christ will not. Just this week, I mean, kind of like a strange timing, just like the day before Easter Sunday, I was just reminded of the fleetingness of our life. I had uh, known a man, uh, not, not, a, not, a, not super close, but a man I knew who um, 
I had known for over a decade. Uh, a week ago, Friday, um, I was in Starbucks. I was working on my sermon. He came in. I hadn't talked to him in a couple of years. He sat at the table with me. It was a communal table. And we had this great 15-minute conversation. He came in and said, what's new with you, Rodney? And the way that just was the way that he spoke. And we sat for 10 or 15 minutes, and we talked about weekend plans. We talked about um, how the church was doing. We had this uh, brief but good little conversation about the idea of new things happening and monotony in the Christian life. And then he got up to leave, and I was busy. I was Friday, and I was working on my sermon, so I was running a little behind. And, you know, I gave him just a brief goodbye, and I had no idea that that would be the last time I would ever see that brother this side of eternity. For we found out last Thursday that he had passed away in a, a tragic drowning accident. And I was just, I was thinking about that. As I was, I, we, I learned that Thursday night, Friday, I'm getting ready for Good Friday. And just the reality of how fleeting this all is just seemed incredibly real. All of this, everything that we put our hope in, the job that we have, the house that we live in, the new thing that's just around the corner, it's all fleeting. But our anchor is steadfast. For our anchor is also described as having gone behind the curtain. This is a, veil, a reference to the veil that hung across the inner sanctuary, inner sanctuary of the tabernacle, and it concealed the Ark of the Covenant where God in his glory met with the high priest once a year as he brought a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. We've talked about that in the last few weeks, and we'll talk about the, the, the priesthood more in the weeks ahead. But the author of Hebrews he had just previously pointed out that this concept was too weighty for the dull of hearing. Yet because of his assurance of God's faithfulness, of his continual watering of his people, he leans into this concept nonetheless after giving that short rebuke, knowing that the Lord will provide understanding to those who are his. And he's going to talk a lot more about this concept. But the overarching theme that he wants us to know about our great high priest is that he is not a priest like Aaron or Levi, who had to make sacrifices for themselves before accepting those of others. No, friends, Jesus entered into, our great hope entered into the Holy of Holies once and for all with his own eternally precious blood so that his atoning work for us is perfect. And no sacrifice will ever be needed again. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the temple is closed. The high priest is out of work. He has been replaced by the permanent high priest. Once Jesus walked out of the empty tomb, nobody else could do that job anymore. It has now been taken officially and forever through the one able to bring his own perfect sacrifice. And this is what verse 20 means when it says that Jesus has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The empty tomb proved his sacrifice perfect, and thus his priesthood has no end. Because this is true, you do not need to lay a foundation again. For the foundation was laid by Jesus Christ, once and for all, on Easter Sunday morning. The check was written Friday night, and the check cleared on Sunday morning when Christ walked out of the tomb. Our anchor, our promise, is sure. He is steadfast. None of our works, nothing we can attain by our hands can give us a hope by which we can endure this life. 
So like Abraham, we wait and endure patiently, awaiting the final fulfillment of God's promise with resurrection assurance. Because Christ defeated death and he walked out of the tomb, so one day we will walk out of the tomb. Our hope this morning, our reason to endure, endure is found in the finished and purchased work of Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest. This morning, might we continue to celebrate to that end. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your goodness and your graciousness. Lord, thank you um, that though we were not a people, you have made us a people. Not on the basis of our bloodline or on the basis of, of, of our accomplishments, but on the basis of your gracious and perfect sovereign will. Lord, I ask that on this Easter Sunday, we might know the love that you have for us revealed through Christ. And that knowing and believing that love might be real and proven genuine in the midst of all sorts of tribes. Lord, might you do such a work in us in rescuing us that we might endure to the end. I ask on this day, Lord, I, I ask here on this Easter Sunday in 2022 that you, O oh Lord, might bless your people, that you might give us all that we need to endure to the very end. I ask that for each one. Well, Lord, those who know that they are yours and those who do not know that they are yours yet, Lord, I ask that you might give them all that they need to endure. Surely, there will be difficult days that lie ahead. We, we recognize everything that we cling to and hold to and work for, this side of eternity is fleeting. And we will experience that fleeting um, over and over again in the years and decades that lie ahead. But we ask in the name of Jesus, our resurrected Savior, that we might have all that we need to endure and that we might cling to such things that we would not become dull of hearing, but that we might offer all that we have like Abraham before your feet, that you would reward our faithfulness one day perfectly and completely when we stand before you and your uh, majestic uh, son. Lord, I thank you for this day. And then I ask um, that our celebration, our time together, our breaking of bread might bring glory and honor to you and might lift up and encourage our souls as we walk out into the world where you've called us to be light. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.